0: But we knew she got There was a special song, and we recorded it on our first session in Decca Studios in West Hampstead, and uh, Decca released it, and it was a hit, you know, almost immediately, quite quickly. I'm
1: I'm kind of picturing uh, the two of them with guitars firing lasers at the end or something like that.
2: (laughs) That's exactly what I see, but I (laughs) I feel like it was just a bunch of drugs and paranoia, (laughs) you know, a bunch of weird things happening with them.
1: Welcome to episode four of the Vintage Rock Pod, the podcast series that features rock star interviews giving us the rock and roll stories from the 60s, 70s and 80s. I'm Paul Stevenson, thanks very much for listening. Uh, Now it's just three weeks since this series was first launched and I've been genuinely bowled over by the response to it, so thank you very much, Uh, culminating in a full page article in the Scottish national newspaper The Daily Record, the lovely big headline of Shed Zeppelin, a picture of my ugly mug underneath. Now that's because I record these podcasts and the interviews, and if you've seen the videos on YouTube, you'll have seen yourself in my shed. But it's not just a shed. During lockdown, I turned it into a pub, a vintage rock-themed pub. So yeah, a lot of the papers are picking up on this, and I'm getting a nice bit of coverage for it, which is nice, of course. Right, on to matters at hand, and this week's episode of the Vintage Rock Pod has a strong 60s flavour to it. Coming up, I've got a great interview with American author Stephen Tao. He's written a book about the rise of rock music scene in London in the 60s. Now, you can imagine some of the names that we speak about. He interviewed so many people for this book as well, so he's got a lot to say. We'll also be catching up with our good friend Maudi from Los Angeles as well. And a little heads up, there's no quiz this week. It's a packed show, so don't have time to squeeze it in. But it'll be back, I'm sure, on future pods. Right, let's kick off with our Rockstar chat, and it's with another Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, our third in four weeks. We've had a drummer on episode one in Kenny Jones, uh, John Ilsley from Dire Straits was on episode two, he's a bass player of course, and the brilliant Bruce Watson, guitarist from Big Country, was episode three, so it's high time I completed the band and brought you a frontman, a vocalist. Now, this guy was part of a band that's still going strong today. They have a load of tour dates that they'll hopefully be able to fulfil in 2021. And as you'll hear from the interview, they're also back in the studio working on new material too. But it's an unusual rock and roll tale, this one. They came up in the early rise of the rock bands and were front and centre of the British invasion of America. They had three huge singles over there. They released a seminal album, which Rolling Stone ranked in the top 100 albums of all time. And as I've said, they've been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Their music is much loved and has been covered by diverse acts such as uh, Dusty Springfield and Santana to the Foo Fighters and Eminem. But as you'll hear, their big success came after they split up. So a big welcome to the Vintage Rock Pod lead singer of the band The Zombies, Mr Colin Blunstone.
0: Well, thank you, Paul. That was that was brilliant. Thank you so much.
1: No worries at all. It's, it's an absolute pleasure to chat with you. Now, I mentioned that uh, you're a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's, it sounds like a fantastic place for me to start. But this came over 50 years after you had, your hits were released, all your big singles. Now, obviously, you've toured and you've recorded much more recently than that. But how did it make you feel to still be recognised and lauded after such a long time?
0: Well, I mean, it's absolutely brilliant that, uh, that we did get that recognition. It's um, a wonderful honour uh, to be to be inducted alongside so many other fantastic acts and of course the actual induction ceremony it was in um the barclay arena in in new jersey in in america um it's it's home to a, a basketball team out there and it houses about Seventeen to 19,000 people it was, a, it was a wonderful evening it was on, on TV it was on uh, TV out there and I think there were seven acts that were inducted at the same time as us. and we played uh, and of course there was the good and the great of the music business mm-hmm. sitting right in front of us <laughs> and then 17 or 18,000 people behind them so it was quite an occasion it was very exciting
1: I can imagine as well especially being inducted by Susanna Hoffs who's, who's just wonderful herself isn't she?
0: She's absolutely brilliant and she spoke so well. She's just an absolute natural. Um, She was so eloquent and uh, in in part amusing when she wanted to be amusing and very knowledgeable as well. We were absolutely thrilled that she gave the, uh, the speech at our induction
1: and something which would have made um, many boys from the 80s proud was the fact that she said your voice is very sexy
0: (laughs) well she did (laughs) it took me a bit by surprise that (laughs) I, I looked at her a clip of the, of the ceremony, and when she said that, they, the camera went on to me, and you could see I'd really sort of <laughs> it because I wasn't expecting that. But yeah, I mean, that was a real plus, yeah.
1: Absolutely. Uh, now, let's take it right back to the beginning then, to, the, to maybe the late yeah. 50s, early 60s. Um, I spoke to John Ilsley from Dire Straits recently, and says things that can be a real happy coincidence, how things can kind of work and get together. Now, tell, tell us how the zombies began. How did it start? Because you were at school, weren't you? School age.
0: Yeah, we were all at school. I think it really began when Rod Argent saw his cousin, the late, great Jim Rodford, who actually was our bass player mm-hmm. in this incarnation of the Zombies. But Jim Rodford in those days is a little bit older than us, and he lived in St. Albans, and he was in the big local band, the Blue Tones, a fantastic band. Rod Argent saw his cousin play in the Blue Tones and loved it so much. He determined to start a band, and that's really where it all started he had a a friend who lived in the next road called paul arnold who became the bass player in the very first incarnation of the zombies and i sat next to paul arnold at school so (laughs) it's 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 just as you said you know so much of it is chance and and paul arnold said to me you've got a guitar haven't you and wisely or unwise i'm not quite sure i admitted (laughs) that i've got a guitar And that was more or less my audition for the band. (laughs) It was, you know, come to a rehearsal. And we had our first rehearsal around Easter 1961. And I only knew uh, Paul Arnold, the bass player. And that's how we started. Uh, Jim Rodford um, let us borrow all the gear from the local big band, the Blue Tones. And our first rehearsal, I actually thought we, we didn't sound too bad. But at our second rehearsal we had to just use whatever we could get together and we had practically nothing we didn't have any proper drums we had one homemade amplifier between us and it was a bit of a come down the secondary really (laughs) but uh, i'm sure you know all bands start like that you have to build up the gear and and your playing technique and of course, your contacts for where you're going to play—it takes time.
1: Indeed, but that obviously the momentum from that age ramped up really, really quickly, didn't it? Because she's not there. Hit the number one spot in America as a huge hit in the UK as well. But you—you you guys were what, eighteen, nineteen at that point?
0: Yeah, I, I, Rod and I were both eighteen when we recorded that, and uh, we were just nineteen when it was a hit in the UK, and it was a hit a few months later. Uh, in the states, it was Christmas '64, uh, '65 that it was a hit in the states, and um, yeah, we we would have been 19 by then.
1: And it's phenomenal—not just the 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 delivery of the song, because obviously the performance is fantastic, but the songwriting as well from Rod for for such a young age to write such a—it is quite a complex song as well, isn't it? It
0: is. I would say it's quite a sophisticated song Yeah. and I mean he amazed me actually I think he'd written a couple of songs before, beforehand but he'd never mentioned it to any of us um, that song kind of started when we'd been introduced to a producer called Ken Jones who we were going to do um, a session in Decca Studios in West Hampstead for Ken Jones and he was just having a chat with us a couple of weeks before we went into the studio and in the middle of this chat he said sort of a pep talk really And he said you know you could always write something for the session if you wanted to and then he went on and talked about something else it wasn't a big deal and and i i kind of overlooked that but rod argent and chris white went away and they both wrote songs i think it was probably chris's first song and it was rod's second or third song i think and i was amazed when they came back a few days later and they got these songs and i think we all knew that especially she's not there although chris's song uh, you Make Me Feel Good went on mm-hmm. the B-side of the Zombies version of She's Not There. They're, they were both good songs, um, but we knew She's Not There was a, a special song, and we recorded it on our first session in Decca Studios in West Hampstead, and uh, Decca released it, and it was a hit You know, almost immediately, quite quickly.
1: And it was almost the first time as well that the world got to see the the three things that make the zombies so unique. Obviously, your vocals are incredible, and everyone everyone talks about that all the time. Rods' his um, songwriting and is, is is probably one of the best keyboard players of his generation. But also Hugh on the drums as well. It's very hypnotic the way he plays. It's not a, a standard four four. It's it, do you know what I mean? It's it's very different.
0: Oh, it is very different. And I think that there were quite a few zombie songs. In fact, possibly the better zombie songs all had a very different rhythm track. And of mm. course the the bass parts were were, very, were outstanding as well, but sometimes those bass parts and the drum parts were written as part of the song. Yeah. They're not, they didn't come together as a result of the band jamming. Uh, it, it, they were written as part of the song, not always, but quite often.
1: Brilliant. And just talking a little bit about the British invasion, then, because you were the second British band to have a number one in the US. Obviously, the Beatles were the first. So you were prime in fr- in front when it came to this kind of thing. Now, how did it feel at the time? Did you realise it was such a big movement?
0: I don't think I realised how big a movement the British invasion was in the- in the states. It really means a lot to them because. Before then, American artists had always dominated their charts, pretty much as they dominated our charts Mm -hmm. over here. And I think it opened uh, America's eyes to the rest of the world, musically, really. Of course, the Beatles started it. Without the Beatles, none of this would have happened. But as soon as they had had their hits there, America could not get enough of British bands. And it, it grew into a huge movement, certainly musically, but you could also see it. In fashion, with people like Mary Quant and Twiggy, mm-hmm. photography, David Bailey, um, in the theatre, and um, in, with John Osborne and people like that. And in the cinema, you had people like uh, Terence Stamp and Michael Caine. And, and being British was suddenly the, at the forefront of all the arts.
1: Very cool indeed, very cool indeed. Um, moving on just slightly a little bit further then, the, the seminal album Odyssey and Oracle, uh, as I said, Rolling Stone ranking it top 100 album of all time, um, and other accolades that, that, that kind of continued to roll with it. But you guys split before that really became a success, wasn't it? We did. I mean,
0: that's the sort of irony of it, really, that um, I, there, weren't, there wasn't really a lot of attention given to that album when it was released and it certainly wasn't a commercial success and yet over the years and it can only be through word of mouth because no one's been promoting it or marketing it but over the years it has built up a phenomenal uh, reputation it's often thought of as one of the best albums of the 60s and that's not me judging it That's uh, you know billboard and rolling stone and people like that often quoted i know billboard recently quoted time of the season which is taken from other cinema Mm. as the best single of 1969 in america it was released a little bit later um and and as you said rolling stone has named it as one of the best hundred albums of all time so it got all these accolades but there was a huge gap i'm not i'm not sure that this has happened to many albums so from sort of partial obscurity in 1969 when it was released in America, it's suddenly become a very well-known and very well-reviewed and thought of album. In, In its own way, I think it's thought of as a bit of a classic. And as I say, it can only have happened through word of mouth. It quite intrigues me how an album can be virtually ignored at the time it's released and then receive all these accolades so many years later. It, I, I, it's quite a, it's a bit of a mystery to me. I've never really understood it, but but it's a good mystery, and it's wonderful to get the recognition, even though it has come after so many years.
1: Absolutely, and just a quick question. Somewhere I read, um, obviously, time of the season went huge as well. We mentioned that off that off that uh, very same album. Um, were you guys asked to to reform to to then um, come back and play shows and things on the back of that?
0: Well, we were, but it was never, a, 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 for, as far as we're concerned. It was never a, a serious conversation. I know that uh, people did contact us, but by then um, everybody had uh, moved in different directions and were involved with other projects. And it just, it was never talked about that we should reform. I, You know, you sort of look back and think, well, maybe we should have had a last hurrah with the band and toured and it, it could have been our our farewell tour. But, um, you know, that's one way to look at it. But. It just never came up. We were thrilled that we had success with Time of the Season a long time after the band finished. It went to number one in Cashbox and number two or three in Billboard. And um, so that was that was a wonderful thing to happen. But even then, Odyssey and Oracle as an album was never really a hit. I think it got into the Billboard charts for one week at about 98. <laughs> well, when you consider it had a number one record on it... Um, it's quite strange that it didn't go higher, really. But that's, that's the story of this album. It was virtually ignored when it was released. And as I've said, sorry, I'm repeating myself, but that's, that's what intrigues me about it, that it should get this recognition so many years after it was released.
1: Absolutely. Now, I, I'm, I'm, I'm aware I'm pressing for time slightly, so we'll fast forward a little bit. But I just want to mention um, a little bit, because obviously you had a huge solo career um, under your own name. You've worked with many other projects as well, with Alan Parsons' project, and you worked with Rod and, and various other things. But I just want to ask you a little bit about Neil MacArthur. What happened there?
0: Well, um, when the is finished, I honestly didn't know what to do. I, I would have liked to have stayed in the music business, but there didn't seem to be an obvious path for me, to be, to be absolutely honest. Um, and so I just I took I, I just needed to get a job. I'm afraid the zombies weren't very well managed <laughs> when they were together in the 60s, and especially the non-writers. So that would be Paul atkinson myself and Hugh Grundy. We were left with very with very low funds at the end of the band, and I had to get a job. And while I was um, doing this job, I was just working in an office, it was the first job I was offered. Um, time of the season became a big hit in the states and because of that people started contacting me to record that they hadn't done that at the end of the zombies but suddenly they were contacting me and a particular producer called mike Hurst, he'd had a lot of success with the early cat stevens records and, and some other things as well he was a very successful producer contacted me and eventually we talked about doing some tracks and he came up with the idea of just changing my name and Neil MacArthur came from I Know Not Where. Uh, I don't think there was any deep meaning behind it. It was just a name. And he also suggested re-recording She's Not There, which is a kind of a strange uh, route to take. But at the time, I wasn't even sure that I was going to get back into the music business. This was just almost like auditioning again, really. I was going after a day's work in the office, I was going to Olympic Studios in Barnes and literally just putting vocals on some tracks. And then when they were released, they came out under the name of Neil MacArthur. And the first one, the She's Not There track, was a you know a top 30 hit mm-hmm. in the UK. And it, I think it could have done something in America. But unluckily, another band had re-recorded She's Not There in America. They were called The Road. And they'd had quite a lot of success with that track. And they just... Beat us to it. There were a few weeks before us. I think otherwise it could have been successful in America. So I had um, three singles released under the name of Neil MacArthur. And then I was literally talking to Chris White, who was driving me home from a party, because we were still mates. And um, he said, You know, why don't you come and record with Rod and I? So it'd be Rod Argent and Chris White from the Zombies. Uh, producing me as a solo artist under my own name. And, and that's what happened. We went to CBS Records and released my first solo album, which was called One Year. And from that, there was a track written by Denny Lane called Say You Don't Mind that mm-hmm. was released and it was quite a big hit. Yep. And so I was off and running again as a solo artist. I, I wasn't sure that I would ever get that opportunity, but just uh, you know through the way things panned out, Suddenly the door opened and I was a solo artist with
1: a hit record. Fantastic. And then just fast forwarding to to, to today then, um, you guys uh, had a tour and obviously with all the coronavirus and COVID and things like that it's had to be postponed, but the tour is going ahead in February and March of next year. It is the Invaders Return Tour. What can um, people coming along to your shows expect to hear and see from you guys?
0: Well, obviously we'll play all the hits and we usually play some Argent tunes. Because I work with the Alan Parsons project, we sometimes play a little bit of the tunes that I was I was involved in with Alan Parsons. Okay. But perhaps most importantly, we'll be playing completely new songs from the new album that we're recording at the moment. So I think there'll be something there for everyone. You know, There'll be well established hit songs that everyone will know. And there'll be some new songs Brand new songs, and from what I've heard so far, they're absolutely fabulous songs. So it would be a thrill to play these new songs for the first time on tour.
1: Absolutely, and that's an exciting point. You're recording some new songs, and and you just mentioned before we started recording, now, where you're recording them.
0: We're recording them at Rod Argent's studio. He's just built a studio in an outbuilding that's uh, attached to his house. So we're the we're the first ones into his <laughs> new studio, and. Um, Uh, of course that's very exciting that there is a new facility there that which we can use but i I think you know for the zombies the really exciting thing is always to write and record new material that's what gives us our energy and and uh, our enthusiasm to to always be working towards the next album and i think there are very few bands from the 60s left now who are writing and recording new material so again it gives us a sort of a a privileged place, place really because we are one of the few bands left from that era that are doing that.
1: Absolutely, and if you want to see the Zombies live with Colin's wonderful vocals, then the tour starts on February the 11th in Harpenden. Uh, it moves along to Fletching, you've got a couple of dates there, then Milton Keynes up to Glasgow as well, as well on February the 18th, uh, down to Gateshead, you've got New Brighton, Homeforth, Bury St Edmunds, Bristol, Exmouth, um, and then you're into Wales with a place that I can't even pronounce, to be honest with you. Uh, back to London in March, and then you've got Wimborne Minster, uh, you're in Taunton, and uh, yeah, that's that's the UK dates. And then you head off over Od- to to Norway and things like that as well don't you
0: that's right then we'll start the uh, the uh, the foreign part of the tour and I think with the zombies we do spend a lot of our time touring abroad which is great because we get a chance to see the world yes and uh, what more can you ask and sort of playing the music you love touring with your mates and um, seeing the world as you go along it's it's a wonderful life
1: It sounds fantastic. So if you want tickets for that, they're available at thezombiesmusic.com forward slash live. And just when I was surfing around on your website as well, I noticed that you've got some uh, zombies uh, face masks.
0: We have, yes. To my knowledge, we've got two separate ones. One is featuring the artwork from Odyssey and Oracle, the Mm -hmm. album we've been talking about. So there's a face mask featuring that. And another one has got a a zombies logo. It's a black one with a, a white logo on top of it. So if anyone wants them, if you go to the zombies website, I think you'll be directed... where you can
1: get them from. Yeah, they're just on there on your website there. It's perfect. Excellent. Thank you very much for talking to me, Colin. It's been an absolute pleasure and we look forward to hearing the new music too.
0: Absolutely. Thanks, Paul. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks so much.
1: Such a gent, Colin Blunstone of the Zombies. Definitely keep an eye on their social media and the website and things like that for the news on the tour, especially with all the restrictions and everything we've got in place. And as face masks seem to be here to stay, it's worth looking at those stylish ones too. Definitely make you stand out from those uh, clinical white and blue disposable doctor-looking ones that everyone's trying about in. Now, if you're not fully aware of their work or the Zombies back catalogue, now it's that point of the episode where I attempt to point you in the right direction to get you going and give you the Vintage Rock Pod Top 5 Zombie Songs. We start with a story of someone writing to their partner in prison waiting for their release. From the much-heralded Odyssey & Oracle album, at number 5, it's Care of Cell 44. At 4, it's the song that rose from the ashes of the band as Odyssey & Oracle went big after the band disbanded. came back into the UK mainstream a few years ago as well when it appeared on the TV adverts for Bulmers. Number 4 is Time of the Season. Third on my list is actually a B-side, flipside to the single Going Out Of My Head from 1967. It's the upbeat, positively raucous She Does Everything For Me. At two it's a track that's just 98 seconds long, but manages to pack so much into that time. It's cool, it's moody and unashamedly 60s. It features a keyboard solo, a guitar solo, and three quick whipped verses as well, with Colin's vocals doing acrobatics at times. From the first album Begin Here, at number two It's What More Can I Do. And at number one we go back to where it all began, the band's first single released in 1964, one of the first songs Rod Argent ever wrote. It still sounds brilliant today. The best song from the Zombies, according to the vintage rock pod, is She's Not There. And of course give Odyssey and Oracle the much heralded album a listen to in full as well. And as always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on these choices. Let me know your top five tracks, what you think I should have had in that list. Now, I'm guessing a few people are going to be saying a rose for Emily. Comment on the YouTube video or the post on our Facebook page too. And to find those, just search for Vintage Rock Pod. Dead easy. Anyway, let's continue with the 60s vibe and make our first trip to America on this episode for a great chat about the rise of the rock scene in London. Now, today I'm speaking to a professor and an author. It's Mr. Stephen Tau.
3: Thank you for having me on.
1: No problem at all, Stephen. Where, where, where are we uh, reaching you from today? Whereabouts in the world are you?
3: I am um, about an hour north of centre City, Philadelphia.
1: Philadelphia, very nice yeah. indeed. We're in the Highlands of Scotland, so slightly different. But we'll carry on. <laughs> Just a little bit indeed. Um, Yeah, so let's begin then. Um, London, Reno, and me, that's the reason we've got you on. But let's take us back a little bit before then, because uh, you'd written a book before that and that was about Seattle and the grunge era. So what was it that made you go from Seattle in the 90s to the swinging 60s of London?
3: That's basically because uh, as being a music fan, you know, the grunge thing really stuck with me because that was like my 60s. I was in my late 20s when Nirvana kind of blew up, and that was – I just didn't get mainstream 80s. It wasn't my thing. Mm-hmm. And so when Nirvana and, you know, all those bands out of Seattle hit. I just loved that. So I wrote that. Yeah, I wrote that book, and that came out in 2011. And uh, for this book, um, it's going back to my, my roots. I mean, again with the 80s. I mean, I was in college in the early first half of the 80s, and that's when MTV hit. And so all of my friends were talking about the cool new Madonna video or the Michael Jackson video or the ZZ Top video. And aren't all the girls really cute in that ZZ Top video? And I'm like, yeah, but the song sucks, you know? <laughs> and um, so that's when I discovered the 60s. That's when I was like, you know, one of my friend's girlfriends gave me a copy of Quadrophenia, and she said, you got to listen to this. And I was like, I <laughs> never heard it before. I'd heard The Who, of course, but I hadn't heard the entire album. Of Quadrophenia, and um, and that's when I got into you know I discovered the Who and Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles, the Stones, Uh, and and it just was so much more vital to me. So for this, for my second book, I went back to my own roots really, and uh, went back and said, well, we looked at Seattle, let's let's look at London, just as a music scene, rather than writing just another book about you know a famous band.
1: Very cool indeed. Now, London, Reno, and me, how England's capital built classic rock. Now, um, the 60s of London, it became, it was the swinging 60s, wasn't it? It became the center of the musical universe and everything like that. But the roots behind that is, is very different, isn't it? It's skiffle.
3: Skiffles a, is, was almost like punk rock before punk rock existed. And, and I think the ideal of punk rock, which is, I guess, because I identify with that because that's where Seattle came from, um, is that just get up and do it. You don't have to be educated for, you know, uh, your entire life training on an instrument to be able to just 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 do it. And, um, and skiffle, you don't have to have any money, really, for skiffle. And kids growing up in England after World War II didn't have any money. So it was a cheap way to kind of have a lot of homemade instruments to put together a band, and everybody did it. I mean, you know, the Kings, Led Zeppelin, the Beatles, all those people started in skiffle groups.
1: Absolutely. Um, so, when you were researching the book and you were going about trying to get interviews and things like that, what did you focus on first? What was what did you think was the main thing that I'm gonna have to get into this first to move on to something else?
3: Well, really, uh, you know where where it came from, you know, and, and I kind of had an inkling, you know, of where you know the the whole the blues and especially uh, you know American blues kind of originating in the South, through like Chicago and stuff. Um, but what was really fast you know i knew about people like john male and alexis corner and stuff but i didn't know this guy chris barber you know i didn't know who he was and i found out he was still around still playing trombone and this was the guy that basically started it once i sort of stumbled upon him and he was kind enough to talk to me a couple times that i was like wow this guy really did start everything you know mm-hmm. in england i mean he kind of brought brought over muddy waters his sister is at Tharp and big bill groomsy and all the you know, young British kids are like, wow, this is really great. What is this? And we don't hear this on the BBC live program, you know? <laughs> so it, it was, it was really great. So yeah, I think it kind of started with that.
1: Excellent. You mentioned there the BBC and obviously, but there was the rise of pirate radio as well around this time, which certainly helped too, didn't it? It,
3: it was really important. It's uh, so 1964 starting Radio Caroline and the BBC would not play that stuff. So You had to kind of, and I think that was part of the thing that was exciting for young people. You know how it is, it's like, especially when you're young, if it's not, you're not supposed to get it or hear it or smoke it, you're going to find it, right? And so, and a lot of the, you know, people like in the Stones and the Yardbirds, they found all these cool records from imports in London shops and and stuff. So the Pirates basically, because the BBC wouldn't play this music, um, you know, these little, these ships, you know, in the North Sea, they would start broadcasting Mm -hmm. and they would play, you know, not just the Stones and the Beatles, but they would also play, you know, American jazz and blues. And, and uh, they really, uh, you know, eventually the BBC were like, OK, we're going to shut that down and we'll do it ourselves. But that took a few years.
1: They certainly did. So when we talk about um, London and the swinging 60s and things like that, there are certainly very different styles of rock music, aren't there, around that time? You talk there about folksy side, you've got your R&B, you've got your mods, psychedelia coming in later on. What kind of came first among that? We've talked about the blues, but what kind of
3: followed from there? Well, that was the challenge for me because you know you could see like and obviously you had the beatles coming out of liverpool but in london you had the stones and the yardbirds and and manford band and some of those bands georgie fame that were really delving into the blues and and then it was like okay well later on yeah there's there's psychedelia and there's prog rock and there's folky rock and stuff and, and I'm trying to connect those two, right? And, and that was a real challenge because it was, and I'm terrible at writing, like I, I struggle with writing transitional chapters. And so <laughs> so um, it's, it's, there's not an easy answer. It's because people took different paths to it. You know, some people like, you have like a Pete Townsend who's a genius who just basically is like, you know what, I, I don't. And of course his manager, Kit Lambert, exposed him with a lot of his classical stuff so he kind of moved into this sort of proggy direction and then psychedelic direction so you had that and you had you know this the psychedelic thing came over and you, people like you know obviously floyd and the move were doing that and that influenced a lot of other people including the yard bird. So so it, it's not really an easy answer as to why it's just i think it's just you had a, a, this young generation that just wanted to explore and 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 people were buying the music and were open to the music so um, I, I think it was um because of that curiosity and of course the talent and uh, and the time so people were just we're just going to try anything and you could see it almost by the month like this rule's being broken and this rule let's try this let's try that and uh and and it was really it's amazing and and it's really kind of um you know i read that and I, and and i'm like man you know we're in 2020 in hell right now <laughs> you know <laughs> and, and it was like, it was such a refreshing time i think especially coming out of the war and the, and the aftermath too.
1: absolutely now as i said earlier you, you interviewed more than 90 people for this book now who did you get hold of that you spoke to that would out to be a million times better than you expected
3: uh probably uh greg lake the late greg lake from uh king crimson and emerson lake and palmer um and I, I you know, i kind of like elp i'm yeah, you know, I'm not a huge fan but i, I kind of like them but um but uh, I had no idea. He was just very, you know, he interviewed certain people and they're very, they're pro- most of them are professional and, and, and you know, um, and you have different levels of, of how much they'll talk. Um, but he was so warm. I mean, he just was so passionate about, you know, and he didn't even talk so much about his own bands more. He talked about the, seeing the Beatles, you know, in 1963 and seeing uh, Jimi Hendrix at Brighton in 1967. And open for Jimi Hendrix, and he was just like, "What is this? These three guys—they look like clowns with the afros and the crazy clothes." And then he said they started playing. And we're like, "This is this is new. This has not happened before." You know, and and at that passion, you know, it, this is sort of a little bit of an aside. I was just thinking about this, like, you know, I teach this course on rock and roll history, right? And uh, every semester I have them listen to "Johnny Be Good" by Chuck Berry, right? You've heard that a million times, right? And I think it was last semester I was like, you know that didn't exist. Like Chuck Berry created that out of thin air. And, and, uh, and I think that that enthusiasm for creating art, um, you know, getting back to Greg, I mean, he just was so passionate about, about that, those particular times. So yeah, I, I had to pick him.
1: Fantastic. And you mentioned there, Jimi Hendrix now he's a fantastic place to start. And um, he came over obviously from America and much more accepted in London in the sixties than he was in his own country at that time.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, uh, I mean, especially like now. I mean, we're having this Black Lives Matter thing going on here, uh, you know, and so we have a whole other set of issues. So, mm-hmm. um, but uh, but the same type of thing, you know. And so, um, with uh, yeah, Hendrix was uh, especially in the '60s, uh, we're still kind of in the midst of the civil rights movement here um, and segregation and you know separate water fountains and all that nonsense. And so he comes over to the UK. And it was completely different and, and people looked up to him and like Eric Clapton, Pete Townsend, you know, obviously very accomplished musicians are looking up to Hendrix like this guy. What? You know, Neil Young once described Jimi Hendrix. He said he played guitar like he was living there, you know? And, <laughs> and so, um, yeah, and, and it's, it's also, I mean, Hendrix is later, but even like a lot of the blues guys that came over to England in the fifties um, mm-hmm. were They just couldn't, they were like, wait a minute, white people were, being cool to us wait they even appreciate they even like what we're doing and and um so yeah very very different atmosphere uh, than here
1: absolutely now um did you discover any bands that you didn't know about maybe they've been lost in time and you thought absolutely fantastic why have not heard of these
3: yeah i mean uh i would say a few of them um the pentangle being one uh, i'd never really heard of them and i knew who some of the players were you know Bert Jansch in particular but I didn't know so much about that particular band, and I was like, they were just this very unusual, um, like acoustic, uh, but but not kind of folky, yeah, definitely folky, but also bluesy, and you kind of, they, there were no limitations on what they would do. The drummer played with brushes. You'd, you'd sit down at a pentangle show, like you'd go to the Philharmonic. You'd sit down. And you would clap politely when they're done, <laughs> you know, because you don't want to be. You want to hear everything, every note that they're playing, and so um, they're fantastic. And I think it was also cool that that again the audiences were receptive to go see the pentangle. You might have the pentangle and you know, like I don't know, Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin on the same bill, and people be like, oh, "That's cool," you know. It wasn't like now. You can you imagine seeing that? I mean, it's everything has got to be the same exact genre of what you're seeing, and and it wasn't like that. So that was an example. I'd say, um, I mean, I discovered a lot, I knew about Fairport Convention, but I really, um, well, Sandy Danny. I mean, anytime you hear Sandy Danny sing, it's just like, you know, really the hair stands up. Um, and I was fortunate actually to get uh, Judy Dybal, who was the first singer for Fairport, to talk to my students a few times before she passed. So, um, yeah, that was, uh, Straubs is another one. They, they were like, they kind of like, they started out as sort of this hillbilly, duo playing like you know bluegrass and then they ended up becoming sort of proggy so yeah
1: uh, bill bruford and um, he wrote the foreword for your book and i mean that's fantastic how did you manage to get that one
3: <laughs> still not sure really <laughs> 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 um, uh, bill is a is a very he's a very thoughtful very serious person and, and 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 brilliant and and um and i had to jump through a bunch of hoops to get an interview with him because he Wanted to make sure that I was serious about this, that I had done my homework, that I was going to ask a bunch of stupid questions. And so finally agreed. Um, and I interviewed him in uh, Guilford. And of course, I got on the wrong train, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> Actually, I'll tell you that story because you want to hear stories, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah, go this for it. Go the for greatest it. story in the world, but it's a story. So um, he basically, we set up a time. This is like, I don't know, I think this was 2013. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, we'll interview him at the, at the Guilford train station, a little coffee shop. And he gave me the time you know, whatever. And, um, and I, I you know, got to Waterloo station, in London, ready to go. Spoke coffee on myself, of course. And, um, and then I get on the train and, you know, going along and I'm like, I'm supposed to be there at ten thirty 30 and got on the 10 o'clock train and it's getting later and later. And I'm like, we're nowhere near Guildford. I realized I got on the the local <laughs> instead of the express. So I'm starting to of panic. So I'm trying to get hold of every possible way, texting, calling, email, nothing and i'm like i blew this interview i blew an interview with bill bruford right so uh, i don't know what to do and, and finally about 20 minutes late i pull up to the train station my phone rings he goes hello steven are you coming you know and <laughs> so he and so he waited he was about ready to leave but i think he probably felt sorry for me and uh we did the interview it went well but uh, when it came time for the forward uh the author's like i mean my publisher says um you know reach out to some prominent people, obviously. And I gave a list of people. And then I was like, wait a minute, because he wasn't on the list. And I was like, it's got to be him. For some reason, it had to be him if, if he'll do it. And he did it. And and um, I was sending him parts of the manuscript as I was writing them. Each time telling him, look, this is crap. This hasn't been edited. So, you know, and uh, but he was very, very cool about it. So, yeah.
1: Brilliant. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you, Stephen. I could chat a bit longer, but I, I just don't have the time. And um, So just let's just plug your book. Whereabouts can we get your book then?
3: Uh, probably uh, the best place since everything shut down I guess is like Amazon or Barnes & Noble I think Waterstones has it over there Um, so yeah you can get it pretty much anywhere online
1: perfect and that's London Rain or Me How England's Capital Built Classic Rock thank you so much Stephen for joining us on the Vintage Rock Pod
3: thanks for having me on Paul it was a lot of fun
1: I definitely recommend you check out the book London Rain Over Me if you love your classic rock tales. Big thanks to Stephen for joining us. Now it's time to speak to our good friend Maudi from the History of Rock Facebook page and Ranker.com over in Los Angeles to find out some more fascinating facts and tales. Now, as this episode is coming out just a few days before Halloween and we've had on the Zombies lead singer that's kind of a pretty apt name for a Halloween episode, isn't it? I'm sure Maudi will have something equally spooky lined up for us.
2: Yes, sir. Um, We're going to be taking a look at David Bowie's, you know, mysterious connections to the occult and paganism, uh, as he famously has been intertwined with Satanism and weird things like that.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So go on then, hit us up. What have you got first?
2: So yeah, he became a big fan of Sir Alistair Crowley and has always just been looking into the occult, but I think it got the best of him because it was intertwined apparently with his drug use. So he would abuse, okay. you know, drugs, and which makes you paranoid if you, you know, abuse too much. <laughs> uh, and and this is my first fact: is he actually had a book that would teach you psychic self-defense. He had it on him at all times. Uh, he would wear <laughs> a silver cross all the time. And I think this was actually during the height of his, like, cocaine abuse, and he was filming The Man Who Fell to the Earth. Yeah, it was definitely not a good time for him. See,
1: straight away, m- most people are doing self-defense classes if you've got worries <laughs> like that. Nobody's going out and buying themselves some sort of cross and, and that kind of thing. That's-, that's strange to start with.
2: Right, right. Yeah, a psychic self-defense book on him at all times, just in case, you know, oh, I'm getting attacked. But uh, I thought that was pretty interesting, uh, <laughs> you know let me
1: flick to page 38 i'll done (laughs) yeah exactly
2: yeah what what kind of attack are you feeling (laughs) um (laughs) let's see let's find another one here i thought this one was really good so i don't know he was living in los angeles at the height of his paranoia i guess he was convinced that there were demons in his swimming pool so he actually had um somebody come and exercise his pool uh he actually paid someone to do that yeah
1: (laughs) (laughs) did the guy turn up with a big net i mean how did he get demons out of (laughs) a pool well
2: apparently um he was just not having a good time in this place obviously because of the drugs and he he got someone to just come by with like a couple instructions a few hundred dollars worth of books talismans and like just random items of occult backgrounds and, and tried to perform some kind of a ritual it is cool to get these demons out yeah <laughs> apparently he was uh just uh on a strict diet of cocaine milk red peppers Talk about it's
1: a- the famous bowie occult I'm, diet is it the elder <laughs> uh, cocaine milk and red peppers. i wonder <laughs> if that's the
2: famous uh, crowley uh diet <laughs> <laughs>
1: so Speaking of the exorcism with the swimming pool, I mean you're talking Los Angeles and you, you live there yourself. Do you know many people that'll come around and do that nowadays if you've got issues <laughs> with demons in your swimming pool?
2: Um, you know, I've heard a lot about a couple houses that are haunted and you know, you'll go by them and it's like no notoriously that like, there's been a bunch of celebrity murders and all this stuff, or the Manson family was a, you know. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past it because those places are definitely, you know, holding some kind of weird tension. Not that I'm a believer, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's see, let's move on to the next one I've got here, um, which I thought was the most interesting one and probably the last one I'll leave you with because uh, I think you're going to want to read into this one yourself, Paul. Um, according to Rock Legends, that Bowie and Jimmy Page went at it with a ma- magical battle um, what that entails, I'm not too sure. But oh, come on, it says here it says here that obviously Jimmy Page uh, purchased Alistair Crowley's estate, um, and it came with a bunch of stuff that he owned yep. and all this. Yep. So, uh, but Bowie was terrified of Page, and he was convinced that he was casting spells on him. <laughs> um, and yeah, apparently some kind of a ritualistic. Thing that happened in the studio between them there was some kind of symbols written on the floor yeah it was just very like weird <laughs> magical warfare sending each other little trinkets and stuff so that sounds of, bizarre uh, kind of funny i'm, yeah. all, I'm kind of
1: picturing you know, um, the two of them with guitars firing lasers at the ends or something like that or smoking <laughs>
2: yeah that's exactly what I see, but I, I feel like it was just a bunch of drugs and paranoia and, you know, a bunch of weird things happening to them. And But, uh, yeah, I, I think that that one's a good one, honestly. I would love to read into what happened in that battle. I could just imagine them both shooting yep. beams at each other.
1: <laughs> Absolutely bizarre. Now, as always, Maudie, if we want to read the rest of them, because there's, there's 14 facts, isn't there, about David Bowie and his links to the occult and that sort of thing. What there's do we There's do?
2: 14 of them. You can... Go give me a follow at Facebook um, at the History of Rock page, um, or you can just go to Ranker.com and search up David Bowie. We've got a ton of lists on him, and you know, a bunch of cool stuff that you definitely probably didn't know or wanted to be reminded about.
1: <laughs> just like him having a, a crazy battle with Jimmy Page—that's something I needed to know about. <laughs> exactly. Who 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 would have ever thought? Who would have ever thought? Indeed. Thank
2: you as always, Maudy It's an absolute pleasure, Paul. Thank you for having me.
1: So that's episode four in the can. Quick heads up about what we've got coming up on future episodes because I've been doing interviews from my pub shed left, right and centre lately. So over the next few weeks, we've got some really, really diverse guests coming on from a songwriter whose records have sold more than half a billion copies worldwide. He's got some great stories about the Beatles and Jerry and the Pacemakers, Tom Jones and stuff like that. We've got a British hard rock singer from the 80s whose band released 21 studio albums and toured with the likes of Ozzy Osbourne and Whitesnake. And also a member of one of the leading punk bands too. Loads coming up and all diverse for all types of music. It's what we do here on the Vintage Rock Pod. Also, make sure you subscribe to this podcast series wherever you're listening to this. Give us a review and a rating too, please. All that kind of helps. And tell your friends. Spread the word about the podcast episodes are released each monday morning i oh, wouldn't you to miss any also give us a follow and join in the chat on social media facebook instagram or twitter and see the video interviews and everything else on youtube as well all you've got to do is just search for vintage rock pod wherever you go and you'll be able to find us until episode five then take it easy and keep listening to your rock music and if you come across anyone who isn't a fan just tell them my music is better than yours take care